So this is a special episode, and I'm going to do something that I don't typically do, and that is to split up this episode into two parts. Uh, anybody who's familiar with the This Is Horror podcast will uh, know that Michael David Wilson is kind of known for doing longer form discussion, and that is absolutely what happened in the case of talking with him about this book. So this is the first of two episodes. The first episode that you're going to hear now is not focused as much on the book that we came here to talk about as is talking about Michael himself. So we talk about early life lessons, we talk about writing, and we talk a little bit about some random stuff like the This Is Horror Awards and stuff. So this is a much more getting to know the author episode, and then we are scheduled to record a second part very soon, and that is going to be very focused on the book. Something else that came up uh, in in our original discussion was about a 30-minute kind of off-air, not intended to be part of the podcast discussion where we got really deep into my almost book review analysis of um, House of Bad Memories and then him reacting to some of the points that I made and then it kind of grew into a discussion that felt very podcast worthy so right now I'm not 100% sure if that's going to be part of part two or if we're going to make it a special kind of cutscenes bonus type of thing that we put somewhere whether it's my YouTube, uh, if it's kind of on the This Is Horror website, not 100% sure. That's a really interesting conversation, and I want to make sure that we make that content available. Just not 100% sure where it's going to land right now. Then on a future episode, we'll have a more in-depth discussion where we talk about his book, House of Bad Memories, and really dive deeper into that. But for now, please enjoy part one. House of Bad Memories is for fans of dialogue-heavy fiction that like books that change genre partway through and then again towards the end. If you like Tarantino-style tangents, then this is for you. If you like WTF moments, then this is for you. If you like reading about repressed childhood trauma, and maybe you do, then this is for you. Denny wants to be the world's best dad to his baby daughter, but things get messy when he starts hallucinating his estranged, abusive stepfather, Frank. Then Frank winds up dead, and Denny is held hostage by his junkie half-sister, who demands he uncovers the cause of her father's death. Will Denny defeat his demons, or be perpetually tortured for refusing to answer impossible questions? House of Bad Memories is Funny Games meets This is England with a Rosemary's Baby Undertaste. Available from Cemetery Gates Media, Friday 13th of October. Michael, we have known each other since, I want to say, 2012. And um, we've been guests on each other's podcasts. And, and I've listened to, I want to say I've probably listened to every episode of This is Horror. Um, and so I've noticed some things about your format. And maybe this whole time I've just been waiting to be able to do this to you. So the first question is, uh, can you tell me about some of your early life lessons? I know we might be going in that direction when you mentioned (laughs) the format. You know, early life lessons, are they specific to writing or is it 
anything that seems permanent, that pertinent, that may have informed me growing up in those formative years? I'm going to say anything goes because um, outside of talking about books or being an author, there's a lot of wisdom in you. So if there's a specific nugget that you think is something that would be good for listeners, I'd love to go with that. Yeah. Goodness, I, I can't believe that I didn't anticipate that you were going to do this. <laughs> I was I was so ready for it for episode 500 of This Is Horror Podcast, but you, yeah. you've sprung it upon me here. Early life lessons. What an absolute rookie mistake to have not prepared for this potential <laughs> question. Um, I'll tell you a podcasting and a being interviewed lesson, and that is if somebody asks you a question and you're not sure exactly how to answer it, then you can stall a little bit for time by repeating <laughs> some of the key words in the question. You can also say, oh, well, that's an excellent question, and quite a few people <laughs> do that to me. But, I mean, when you're talking about early life, the, the initial thing that I'm thinking about is how I got into horror to begin with. But, I, but I'm wondering if we covered that before when we were, you know, talking on booked, but even if we did, it, is it okay to kind of repeat and to talk about that kind of thing? Yeah. 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 <laughs> this, this isn't like canon to I don't, a point. It's like, no, I don't all have... ARC party <laughs> listeners are expected to have listened to every conversation we've ever had. Yeah, I don't have that much confidence in listeners to have been such diehards. So um, as much as like they, I'm, I'm sure people have heard those, I don't think everybody has. Mm. Well, I'm going. I to can throw you, you a then. different question while you consider it, if you want. Unless you're ready. I'm. I mean, to be honest, me answering most questions is a case of I can't wait to find out what I think, and I realize what <laughs> I think as I'm talking. What What I will do is I will answer a slightly different question that you didn't ask me but since when has that ever stopped me and I mean if we, if we talk about early life I'll tell you about some of my first experiences with story another popular this is horror podcast question and you know that involved hearing ghost stories from my grandmother like when I would stay over at her house, she would tell me all of these tales um, from England, and it's like about like haunted paintings and about this pub that she stayed in. And if you went into the basement at the right time, there were like Roman soldiers that were walking <laughs> through the basement, but because of the way that the pub had been built. Like you'd only see them from the chest up because back in the day, you know, the, the ground was placed differently. And I think just her, her telling me all these things, it really ignited an interest in horror and in the, the disquieting, I suppose, 
And then that coupled with my grandfather really encouraging my writing and my stories probably is what led us, for better or for worse, other people can be the judge of that, is <laughs> what led <laughs> us to me writing stories, stories like House of Bad Memories. But if I, if I try and think about early life lessons, I mean, as with anyone, that there were good and there were bad things <laughs> that happened in my childhood, some of which is touched upon, couched in metaphorical terms, sometimes not as couched as you would perhaps think. Um, <laughs> like House of Bad Memories is probably my, per my most personal book, I would say. Um, it, it's both my most autobiographical and also like wildly fictitious it's like I took the thread of different things that happened and then embellished them to kind of the worst conclusion often <laughs> um but I my my parents were always very encouraging of education I think when I was growing up it was important to get good grades at school but perhaps they instilled that a little bit too much because, you know, later conversations as an adult, like I'd, I'd say to my parents, like I, I was terrified if I didn't come back with a good grade. Like I, I felt that I had to. And I, I, I think that I don't know if it's a case of them softening their stance and revising their own position or if there were different factors that made me believe that, you know, if I failed academically, then I became a failure. But I've, there's been different times in my life where I felt that if I so-called fail at different things, that I will disappoint or I will let down or I will fail my family, like when it became apparent that, you know, my, my marriage had collapsed and I was going to get divorced, I felt like, like I'd failed everyone. I, even though I do not cast any judgment on anyone who is divorced. And actually, if someone says they're getting divorced, it's like, congratulations because it, it doesn't come from like happy relationships don't result in a divorce so it's always actually yeah. a good thing but just because I don't have any stigma towards divorced people but I felt that people would judge me or I felt that my family would and when I went into marriage like that you know I took that vow and that promise very seriously and I just felt that I'd messed up but then no, nobody no, nobody was like yeah you you done bad there <laughs> you've gone <laughs> fucked up I don't know why they'd be talking in vaguely bad American terms anyway <laughs> <laughs> seeing as everyone in my family is British but may, maybe it was Bob who was, it was, just Bob, was casting yeah. judgment yeah <laughs> um, 
so so yeah like it i i guess what i'm i'm as i as i think about it like i'm i'm not really answering life lessons but i guess i'm talking about life misconceptions that then turned out to be entirely false um because yeah i felt like if, if you don't academically achieve then you fail that is not a lesson that is not a takeaway <laughs> and that is that is not true and actually i think in 2023 like there are so many more roots than academia um i i i suppose maybe something that in retrospect has been learned is that you should follow your passion you should do what you're interested in and i've always been interested in writing and reading and english literature and every time i deviate from it i get back on the path eventually so the big lesson is to just you know follow those things that you're passionate about do the things that light you up so I mean my my parents have admitted to this that you know growing up even though I wanted to be a writer they encouraged me that I should do something that would bring more money in that would be more financially secure and you know I've had conversations with my mother where she says you know particularly seeing what i'm doing at the moment and the way that the trajectory of my life has gone that she kind of regrets <laughs> you know it, encouraging that <laughs> but actually like i don't i mean i don't think she should regret it at all <laughs> and i i think that it came from a completely good place and good intentions and i always talk about how intentionality is the most important thing and and actually <clears throat> you know if if i was encouraging like my my daughter and she she wanted to be a writer i think yes you you follow your passion you write you do the things that light you up but you also have to couple that with some realism and some pragmatism and i see so many people so many writers that it's like they're doing the writing but they also have like a, another job and i think that is like a realistic thing to do so i i feel that you know the 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 truth is in the middle so my my mother was saying she regretted telling me to find a financially secure job rather than writing now she thinks she should have just told me to follow the writing but actually the truth is follow the writing but also have a a stream of income and then you know perhaps in the future when your writing is bringing in a decent amount of money you can then transition to doing that full time that that's the advice that i think would be <clears throat> most sensible but as, as i said i always seem to come back to english literature and writing so even though 
English had always been my favorite subject. When it came to applying for universities, I thought I would apply to do philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what reason I have kind of told people for doing this in in the past i don't know what version <laughs> of truth i have given or lack thereof truth and and sometimes i would talk about wanting a change but if i'm going to be perfectly honest the main reason that i applied for philosophy was because it would be easier to get in to oxford university with philosophy rather than english in terms of looking at statistics and i i you know i like to take and obviously this is completely flawed because i'm not taking into account that english is my strength and i've never studied philosophy before <laughs> <laughs> that was the flaw but i got some philosophy books out of the library i got an introduction to philosophy i i learned the name aristotle i learned about seneca and i did enough that i i i managed to get an interview at oxford unfortunately i didn't get a place but i did get a place at all the other universities so i i think you know hadn't studied philosophy before managed to get the interview i think that's a reasonable accomplishment i got quite far when you consider all of the factors um and and then you know at at university in, the, in so i'm studying philosophy the first year but it, like something is missing and that is the joy and the excitement of of english literature and writing and then i looked into like is it possible to transfer there was kind of like a major controversy within the creative writing department about that because i managed to convince my philosophy professor and a few members of the creative writing staff to transfer me to the creative <laughs> writing department for the next for the for the second year and i would be starting in the second year and then the director and i believe the founder of the program found out <laughs> about this and, and warwick's writing program warwick university is really prestigious and like at the time there's only 20 to 25 people who are getting in per year there's a meticulous interview process probably more than to do philosophy at the university of oxford <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah you know, they have to submit writing portfolios as well it's it's intense and so then the founder of this program finds out like well you just let in the, this goff kid which I was at the time <laughs> like half ass in philosophy jump into the <laughs> the writing program so then i had a meeting with him and so at at, at that point on paper it was a done deal that i could start the next year at year 2 of english and creative writing and he he was like you know what he, he was he was pretty frank about it he said like he, he wasn't that happy with what had been agreed upon 
but if I can show my commitment, then they'll accept me. But he wants to take it to the next level. He's like, okay, well, I want you to complete this first year of philosophy doing your absolute best. I want you to get a minimum of a 2-1, which is the second highest grade you could get. And to show your dedication, I don't want you going into year two. I want you to go into year one. So that would then make my university course one year longer, which of course is financially um, more expensive. But, you know, I I made a decision on the spot and I said, yeah, because I wanted to show him, yeah, I am serious about this. And so that was, you know, one of multiple times where I have started straying from my passion and then been brought back to yeah. on, on track and yeah i'm i'm so glad that i did do it as i did it um ironically and as people who are this is how our podcast listeners probably can tell i'm way more into philosophy now than i was <laughs> back in the day like if you listen to the early episodes or not even that early probably the first five years I'm not ending the episodes with quotes from Epictetus and Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. But if you've listened to an episode this month, probably half of them, (laughs) I had a little bit of philosophical wisdom. So my interest in philosophy came later. We, We can go into that at some point if you want we can also save it (laughs) for another episode (laughs) or just save it for for not really up to you but the 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 second and the most pivotal moment where i have deviated from writing and then got back into it was actually about a year after graduating from university and I kind of feel that, like, it, in, in my generation, so people graduating kind of early noughties, early to mid noughties, we were, no, yeah, mid to late noughties, I don't know, I can't keep track of time. We were sold <laughs> this idea that we could be anything we wanted, we could be astronauts, we could be rock stars unlimited possibility then the recession hit (laughs) and we'd like spent all of our youth like accruing these academic achievements these academic achievements that as I told you were very important to me growing up and then it's like well there's no there's no money (laughs) so rather than you know graduating from Warwick, arguably one of the top five universities in the UK. Um, some would argue top 20. That That's still good. Still good. But I didn't get handed a job. In fact, I just, I just worked a job doing admin in an office, which is obviously fine, you know, do whatever you want. But the point is that this job, I could have got without having gone to university. So I spent that year just a little bit troubled and questioning what 
what's happened here? <laughs> because I've spent <clears throat> this time at university thinking that I'm going to kind of walk away better off, but actually I'm just in a situation that I would have been in if I had never gone to university. Now, this is obviously couching it purely in financial terms. Obviously, there are a lot of benefits of the course, of like all the friends, of the networking, but still, it's quite expensive, really. And four years have gone by <laughs> where I haven't really earned any money. The only money yeah. I'd earned in those four years had been <clears> to <throat> be able to pay the tuition fees. So it, that, that's gone. And I, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do, particularly because, as we say, I've, I've got it into my head that I should be doing something that is financially secure. And I thought, well, I could do a graduate diploma in law because lawyers, that that paid a lot of money. <laughs> so I took out a loan. I applied to, to do this law course. So doing the law course would then effectively add on to my degree the equivalent of also having done a law degree. So I, I did that. It was tough, as you would expect. I mean, legal courses aren't known for being, like, really easy. At the end of it, the only thing I knew was I absolutely didn't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> but but I thought, I, you know, that this, is not, this is not the path that I want. It was challenging. I suppose it was interesting to a point, but I just knew that I want to get into something to do with my writing. So it was an yeah. expensive lesson. But so I've, I've couched it in terms that in some ways it's the most expensive lesson of my life because of financially how bloody high that loan was that I had to take out. But in other ways, it's the best moment of my life because after I'd done the law course and realized I didn't want to do that, and I thought, okay, well, I'm not chasing the money, so the only thing left is to chase my passion and to chase what I'm interested in, and that was the writing. So, yep. you know, it, immediately, like literally the summer after, um, I started writing for a number of heavy metal magazines and horror magazines. I shortly thereafter started Read Horror, which became This Is Horror. And since that moment, I've been on this journey that I'm on now. I mean, I, I got anything that was tangentially related to writing. So some of my first jobs apart from the journalism because the journalism was in a freelance capacity but I, mm -hmm. I had things like editorial assistant but like a pharmaceutical company it's very yeah. tenuous <laughs> but we actually spoke off air like you you can manipulate your cv to <laughs> try and make yeah. it look a little <laughs> bit better then i had stuff like online content writer I kind of went between editorial and marketing jobs 
because like marketing as well is tangentially related, you're having to write something. So yeah, there's copy involved. And, and from there, I jumped into, because I, I wanted to be in publishing. So I've got this as horror going on at the time. And I'm making more and more contacts within the industry. And I thought, well, I want to be working for a publisher, ideally as an editor. So then I spoke to Jonathan Oliver at Solaris Books and Abaddon Books, also under the umbrella Rebellion Publishing, who also have 2000 AD. I asked, like, you know, were there any jobs at the moment there weren't any jobs but okay okay is is there a possibility for an internship oh, i'm not sure about that what what if it's unpaid okay so then like <laughs> i literally used i used all of my vacation at a job where i was a digital marketer <laughs> to do an unpaid i think it was a two week block at Rebellion Publishing. And then off the back of that, I got offered a, a job as kind of like an online content assistant. I I do remember we managed to uh, upgrade the title to Digital Publishing Associate, which uh, it, that sounds pretty good. How did that come about? Well, my boss pretty much was like, well, this is difficult to classify. What what title would you like to have for your job? And I know Digital <laughs> Publishing Associate sounds pretty good on the CV. And, and there we go. I mean, I had to take a massive pay cut to, to do that because it's like going from a semi-senior or at least mid-level digital content job to to yeah effectively just being an assistant but it's like this is in publishing this is surrounded by books this is where I belong we've already learned the lesson that we're not following mm -hmm. the money and we're following the dream so if I reject this opportunity then I well I haven't learned the lesson at all so then I I stayed with rebellion publishing for I think I think it was about a year and a half the only reason that I left was because I suppose about a year into it um I decided that I wanted to explore the world more I had a friend who'd been teaching in South Korea and I thought well I'd quite like to you know, to teach in that area of the world. So I was looking at South Korea and Japan. Then I get a job offer in Japan. And I, yeah, I I just didn't want to be stuck in the UK and not know of anything different. And so mm -hmm. it, it was kind of like it, it was still exploring my passion, but a little side mission because it's not related to the writing, but it's like, well, <laughs> if ever there's a reason to to leave a job that you really like, I think going to live in Japan and experience that side of the world is a good reason. And, you know, I still had this as horror. I still had like, like my writing, I guess, like little pockets of freelance editing I had the podcast so even though 
I wouldn't have the the full time job. I mean, I ironically the best jobs that I've had, I kind of created for myself, <laughs> and I have had periods where I've been a full time writer. You know, with with I guess the the caveat being I, I, I am including the editing and the podcasting un, under kind of one umbrella. But at, yeah, at the moment, I'm teaching and I'm writing and doing all the This Is Horror stuff that I do. And it's still all about follow the passion. It's like make sure that you're financially secure to a point. <laughs> but yeah. Make sure that you're doing the work that lights you up. And that is an incredibly long answer that has gone off on many different (laughs) tangents. No, but it all feeds this kind of the purpose of the life lesson that you were talking about. And one thing that I want to tag on a thought about with the idea of um, the lesson you learned from not doing not doing just the practical thing or following the money, but also like you have to follow your passion. I feel, and maybe this is just from my personal experience in my life. It's, and I'm going to equate this in in a weird way, but you know how um, if you're dealing with someone who's an addict or something, you can't make them change. They have to kind of get there. Like there's gotta be something that happens internally for them in order to start to make, to want to make the change. I feel like for some people following the passion is that way too. So I've always been hugely passionate about reading and books. And, you know, there was a a chunk of my early twenties where, you know, I thought that my path was going to be writing. Um, But I I never really made my living that way. Um, But there was a moment where after starting my first podcast booked after doing it for a little while and seeing all of like the people that I'd met and the connections I'd made and all the positive things that came out of it. Suddenly there was a moment of kind of clarity where it's like, you're doing something purely for you because this is what makes you happy. Mm. And I don't think I started that journey thinking this is going to be the outcome, but I just kind of knew I liked talking about books and it just happened to grow into really supporting the passion. So I think that for some people following the passion, sometimes you need to really figure out what that means too. like, what is the passion? Um, you, you might have to try stuff out. Like I really thought I was going to be a writer and eventually, you know, it kind of occurred to me that, I'm much better at talking about people's stories than, than writing my own. And I'm actually much more satisfied with that too. So um, for me, it was a bit of a journey of just realizing what the passion was, but once I locked onto it, yeah, that became very, very important to me. Yeah. And people who have listened to me be so-called interviewed on other podcasts know that I have this tendency to start interviewing the host sometimes because I'm a genuinely (laughs) curious person. But I mean, in terms of, you know, your own writing, you put out a short story in the booked anthology, an incredible 
anthology, if people can still track it down, then they absolutely should. Amazing stories from people like Fred Venturini, Bob Pastorella, you know, the co-host of This Is Horror, and Paul <laughs> Tremblay, to name but three. Yeah. But you, yeah, you had your story in that. You said that there was a point where you thought writing was going to be the path that you took. You, you're saying now it, it's more like the reading, it's the the curating, the interviews with the podcast. Is there any part of you that still wants to write? Do you still write a little bit? I mean, yeah, you're saying that path isn't for you, but there's so many writers who they literally start in like their 60s or sometimes 70s. So is this an itch that you'd still like to scratch? Is this a path that you could see yourself going down? Uh, not currently. I think that what I don't get a lot of, and I'm going to refer to one of your recent, your recent conversation with Josh Mallerman, where, um, you guys did a lot of talking about, um, his unpublished books and stuff. And the idea that his unpublished books were like, like the best formed ideas for what could be a published book. I don't have a lot of ideas that I want to explore, I think is where I'm at right now. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that, I mean, I had, I have, I have thoughts from time to time where I'm like, oh, what if X, Y, Z, and and I just don't have enough energy to explore them. So, I I don't know. I like the idea of writing. I have notebooks in this room of stories and story ideas and stuff that I wrote down 15 years ago that are just sitting there. It's not the thing for me right now. Um, but I've also kind of evolved this idea that for me, the idea of talking about storytelling and analyzing it and explaining it and exploring it is that's really what I think the passion is, is like maybe not telling stories as much as it is like exploring and celebrating and understanding stories. Mm. So I guess that's kind of what really charges me now. Like if I could, um, so I'll give a very specific example. I did a couple of quotes on, on Twitter the other day, and I think it's a really good kind of exploration of why things can be taken out of context. So give me a second while I pull this up. We're not taken out of context, but not fully, you can explore a part of a thing and not understand like the bigger idea right so for the audio listeners who can't see we yeah we've got <laughs> rob olsen he's wearing a blue t-shirt a black hat he's typing into a smartphone at the moment you know just yeah. providing <laughs> a commentary <laughs> you, you know like like you see for the visually impaired so i'm, I'm giving right, right. them that in the background we set you the scene he's he's in like a relatively small office but you know big enough to get the job done there is a bookcase in the background it's got a lot of good books on particularly some books by me including the girl in the video and they're watching and goodness there's the elvis room number one of however many we printed probably 125 and what 
100, in fact. So maybe I kept those 25 to invalidate the value of yours. I don't know. But <laughs> got water for drowning too anyway. Taking a sip of beer. All right. You hear that audio, people? <laughs> that was the strong sound of beer hit, hitting, hitting the table. We're back. Here we go. All right. Um, I'm just going to I'm not editing any of that out now. Um, but I did on <laughs> okay. Twitter on my arc party, um, Twitter account, I quoted Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and it's a quote that says, I think the chances of finding out what's actually going on are so absurdly remote that the only thing to do is say, hang the sense of it and keep yourself busy. I'd much rather be happy than right any day. And that's the character Slarda Bartfast talking to Arthur Dent. If you take that quote by itself, mm. it's pretty inspirational. And so, like, you can just take that and be like, oh, I'm going to model some, some way I act off of that. But if you look at the next two lines, or at least the way the interaction goes in the film, which I watched recently, Arthur says, are you happy? And Slarder Bartfest says, well, no, that's where it all falls down. So, like, <laughs> those are the kinds of thoughts I have now where, like, that's excellent storytelling because I could have just quoted the first part and it would have been yeah. this real statement about a thing. But excluding those next two lines says almost as much as including them. It's like, I'm choosing mm. to take from this what I want instead of really taking what the author meant, which was like, you can have these high aspirations and, and philosophies and stuff, but if it doesn't work, it doesn't fucking matter. So um, I think those are the things that I like to dig into and analyze as far as storytelling goes, because that's very effective he builds you up with that first line and then he just tears it all apart, but it makes you think about why was that so effective? So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't get away like analyzing and dissecting stories is a form of storytelling, or at least it, it very much complements and enhances yeah. the story. So you're continuing to tell the story in a sense, just as you didn't start writing it, you're adding your interpretation. And so, I, I mean, I, I think it is an art form too. It is, you, you know, we, we spoke to a number of authors before and Kathy Koji being one that springs to mind where we've said that the story being told doesn't finish with the writer finishing. It continues, it evolves. Yeah. So, as I say, in a sense, you are storytelling. It's just not in the conventional way. Yeah, yeah. And doing the podcast when we did reviews was definitely that because um, it was a conversation where we kind of learned more about the book by talking about it. And we kind of crystallized maybe a thought about what it could mean. Um, so, yeah, it is it's kind of the natural next step that you would hope. But again, like there was that moment of clarity for me where until I started talking about books, I didn't realize how important it was to talk about books. But once I did, I was like, I, this is what I, I must do this. If I read a book, I have to talk to somebody about it so that we can dig into what is significant about it. So yeah, it really, I had that kind of like moment of change where it became apparent how important the thing I was doing was, I guess. But this is about you. We're talking about you. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> so, 
Um, my next kind of gotcha question, because that was very serious, and I didn't know if I was going to do the joking question first or the serious question first, and I hit you with the serious question first. So now okay. I'm going to give you the joking one, and I don't anticipate you having a good answer for this. But, <laughs> Is I, that based on previous interviews and my answers that you've No, no, you've I just don't think my, my track record. <laughs> <laughs> I've got props. So uh, the next question is, how many people in the years that you've done the This Is Horror Awards do you believe have won three This Is Horror Awards? Do you, do you think okay, that it's a good I, I number I, of people? I thought we were going to go somewhere dark for a second or, or, or like controversial. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me how many people who had won awards I personally thought... <laughs> <laughs> you know who, who would I have voted for? Who was my pick? Well, oh no, no, didn't go. Yeah, no, this is a <laughs> whole different gotcha a where bit. I'm kind of patting myself on the back. In 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 terms of like who who do I think? How many people do I think have won three? This is horror awards. Um, three or more, I guess. Yeah, well, of course there is a. Uh, a former podcast called Booked Podcast. That is <laughs> your own podcast. And I, yeah, de definitely Stephen Graham Jones has as well. Yeah. Stephen Graham Jones has. Now, have there been any more? I would imagine maybe Ellen I, Datlow. Hang, hang on. Do you not? I, I thought you had the answer for this because you said it's a got you. So I thought you were going to tell me. <laughs> No, you don't have no, to. No, that would be way too much work. Well, it's not much of a gut you then, is it? I, I think <laughs> I think the answer is booked and Stephen Graham Jones. Ellen Datlow has only won one This Is Horror Award. It was the latest oh my God. one. But she has been the runner-up nearly every time apart from <laughs> the latest one that she won. So, oh, wow. like I... I get it. You, you you would think that she had won multiple. She deserves to win multiple awards of pretty much anything. She's an amazing editor, but actually only the one time. So it, it's you and it's Stephen Graham Jones. There have been a few that have won a couple of times. John Langan has won twice. Nightmare Magazine have won twice. Ladies of the Fright have won twice. Pseudopod, I think they've won twice. If they've won three times, they'll be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you not include us? <laughs> and I, I believe that John Padgett has won twice too for Vesterian and for Grim Scribe. So... There's your answer. You you nice. haven't prepared. You haven't prepared an actual answer for us to fact check. So it's like most things on the internet. No fact check is required. <laughs> well, if I knew, it would. I think it would take a little of the wind out of the sails of asking the question. You know, um, I just came in with a bunch of bravado because I didn't know if it was a good good answer or not. Um, if I knew the answer, I think I might have asked the question differently. So for journalistic integrity, 
I couldn't, I couldn't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but um, here's what I will say. I know I was a runner up one year as well um, for a podcast of the year. So three wins so in a second that place. Low if you count in runners up, then. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Ellen um, is, she's stacking up those stokers, I think. So I don't think she's, I don't think she's, um, I think she'll be, she'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's like what? What are you gonna say? Disparaging about her? This is our awards. It's like I would never. You're a stoker. She doesn't need you. Fucking piece of paper with the, this is our award. Well, I wasn't gonna say that. No. Um, so uh, that was my. That was really because here's the way that that question uh, got built into this episode. I was moving things around in my office and I happened to see those and I was like, Oh, I'm talking to Michael today. I might as well brag about how many awards I've won. So that's how that went. You just saw the thumbs up, didn't you? Nice thumbs up that you just threw onto the screen. (laughs) That was, that was unexpected. And this is not great content for audio listeners. So, I mean, it's, as I said, there was a, a thumbs up icon that coincided with Rob's answer. I believe he did it. Yeah. It wasn't like a spectral one. It wasn't a glitch. <laughs> That's a, in the, in the upcoming release of the new Mac OS, that's a feature that's built in. It, it interprets hand gestures and puts them on the screen. This is a joke, right? No, like watch. Totally true. It, it, it isn't a joke. I can verify. He, <laughs> he, he put his thumbs down, his thumb down, singular. And then about four seconds later, so there is a bit of a lag with the new iOS, but it is beta at the moment. It's beta software, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Let's talk about House of Bad Memories. Um, okay. Before we get to the one hour mark. <laughs> Um, so house of bad memories is, um, first of all, I want to say it's releasing October 13th, Friday, October 13th through cemetery gates. And, um, this episode will be available before it's out. So, um, you can pre-order directly through them. I know that there's a, a modified rate right now, but I don't know how long that goes for. Um, yeah, so pre-order helps. to get a special pre-order price, and I mean it. I think it's officially running for about another week or so, but I will make sure that Arc Party listeners and like Joe Joe at Cemetery Gates, if he's listening, is like, hang on, what? <laughs> I'll make sure that Arc Party listeners can also get that a reduced rate right up until pre-order so you know i'll, awesome. I'll see do we need another link for that do we need a code it's, it's in hand don't you worry arc party listeners if you have a problem <laughs> getting it then contact me on twitter also known as x at this is horror oh, x i don't even want to talk about how fucking dumb that is <laughs> Um, oh, all right. 
that that Walter Isaacson wrote a book about Elon Musk, and that just came out, and I just I didn't even want to think about it. But anyway, okay. um, yeah, House of Bad. Think about a different book then. House of Bad Memories. Yeah. House of Bad Memories. Um, it, so there's several ways I want to go with this. Um, but first of all, as far as novels that you've written, mm-hmm. where does this sit? Like um, you've published the girl in the video. You published they're watching co-written with Bob mm-hmm. Pastorella. Um, mm-hmm. Is this, so do you basically write and publish or is there just a pile of them sitting out there that you haven't published yet? Like where are you, where does this sit in like the, the, you know, the collection of stuff that you've written? I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of novels in progress and at various stages. And there's a lot of short stories that I've written and mostly published as well. So, I mean, there's various ways to go about answering that, but (laughs) in terms of my published or hopefully quite soon published works, I kind of see the girl in the video on their watching as being two books that you could put together both in terms of thematic concerns and also where I am in my life and also writing style. House of Bad Memories I think deviates a little bit from that. I mean I think people would have seen elements of like crime fiction or thriller with the other two books but I think I kind of have taken that further with House of Bad Memories and so whilst you could maybe argue the girl in the video and they're watching a horror with elements of thriller and elements of crime you could almost flip it with House of Bad Memories and you could say this is like a thriller with elements of horror and similarly a book that I recently finished and is with some beta readers called Daddy's Boy, which I've pitched as the Greasy Strangler Meets a Joe R. Lansdale heist novel. <laughs> I feel that kind of goes next to House of Bad Memories. So the girl in the video and they're watching, you could compile them together as a little bundle and then you could put House of Bad Memories and Daddy's Boy as a bundle too. I think if people, and this, this is ludicrous to be almost pitching daddy's boy before house of bad memories has come <laughs> out, but we're going to go there anyway. But I think if people enjoyed house of bad memories and particularly like if they like the comedic element of things and, and some of the dialogue that people have started comparing to the likes of Tarantino and Guy Ritchie, then I think, there's going to be something in daddy's boy for them. If they didn't, then it, then they're probably not. So if you, if you preferred house of bad memories, which you haven't read yet, cause it hasn't come out yet, <laughs> then you'll like daddy's boy, which also isn't out yet, but give it a year. But if, if you prefer the girl in the video, it might not be for you. So th- those are four books. Then at the moment, There was a short story that I think is one of the best short stories I've written called What Would Wesley Do? It's only available on the No Sleep podcast behind a paywall. 
So you have to subscribe to that specific <laughs> episode. But that that short story has come so close to being published in some really respected anthologies. It's got shortlisted so many times. And I think it's personally the best short story that I've written. And I, you know, I've had like about 20 or so short stories published. So it it is a little bit frustrating that the one that I think is my best <laughs> hasn't been published in print. But I think now that it might be because there are better things planned for it. So last year I started getting into screenwriting to see is that something that, you know, I, I'm apt to do. The jury is still out on that one. But me and Bob, we wrote, we co-wrote an adaptation of their watching. And then literally again, days ago, I finished a script for a full-length version much expanded obviously of the short story what would wesley do and my my plan at the moment and we'll, we'll see what my film agent thinks even if he doesn't like it i think i'm gonna do it anyway so sorry ryan but i, I do appreciate your input <laughs> but i really want to do this i want to then expand or almost what I'm going to do is, so we, we've had the short story and then that has informed the screenplay, but then I want to take the skeleton of the screenplay to inform a novella or novel. And I think that, when that book is available, that will then actually be more in the girl in the video and the they're watching camp of things. It's probably going to be a bit of a, a hybrid between the two modes because, I mean, I, I obviously wrote it much nearer to the girl in the video. I mean, I say obviously. I don't know if I've said at any point when I wrote it, so maybe it wasn't <laughs> obvious at all. But now I'm going back to to write it when I'm more in the House of Bad Memories and Daddy's Boy mindset. So, so we've got that. Also... I'm 60,000 words into a kind of psychosexual thriller called Together Forever. The original idea was to write something that was kind of commercial that I might be able to pitch to a literary agent. But then the flaw of that was, yeah, but I'm still writing as me. So I'm going to go on weird tangents at the point where the calisthenic sex cult turned up, I knew that this was not the commercial <laughs> novel that I'd intended it to be. But we got that one. I'm also writing, co-writing a book called Inamuri, again, about 60,000 words deep. I'm co-writing that with John Crinan. It is kind of hard-boiled Japan set in a sleep cafe, like if Haruki Murakami, Ryo Murakami, uh, joined forces to write the screenplay for John Wick, and then it was directed by Quentin Tarantino. So that's a bit of a mad one. <laughs> and and so that those are the main projects that I'm working on at the moment. And there are a number of 
of kind of first draft novels in various forms. So, yeah, there's a lot of works in progress and first drafts. And I, I guess then it falls more into that Josh Malaman camp of it's like, well, here's Bird yeah. Box. By the way, there's another 20. I mean, there's not, there's not 20, but there's probably a good, a good 10, possibly a good 10 yes. and another bad 10. There could be 20, but <laughs> 10 of them ain't going anywhere. <laughs> Right on. Um, so I like that kind of delineation that you made about the girl in the video and they're watching being kind of like one kind of grouping and then, you know, this moving on to a different grouping. But one thing that I definitely got when I was reading this book was similarities to in their watching some of the more kind of detective E, like figuring things out, like the mystery slash okay, not mystery, yeah. but like yeah. investigate investigative kind of like elements of that book. I was like, okay, um, I'm feeling that that style again. And then I had a thought that was like, this is definitely like the Wilson kind of voice. And then I was like, oh, that's nice. I, I I've since I've read enough that I can I can I can, I can recognize a Wilson voice. So. Um, that was a nice little moment for me being like, oh, yeah, like it's nice when you've read enough of someone where you can start feeling comfortable with knowing how they how they write. Um, but there's no question there where I want to well, start. I, oh, mm, go on. Well, well I, I was thinking a little bit about that kind of thing the other day. And I mean, a few years ago, Max Booth had said to me, that like I might want to consider writing things in in a kind of different style or a different genre because there was the potential that I I was almost I don't exactly know what the term is here because it is not exactly writing the same book again and again but there's the potential to just keep going back to themes or writing similar characters I suppose the kind of writer equivalent to being typecast and so I I, you know I, I thought about that but actually recently and maybe because of all the stuff that's been going on in my life it's like I just want whatever I write to be authentically me and to be interesting to me and to be fun to me. And I do think we are, say we, it's only one of me, I am getting to a point where you could almost parody a Michael David Wilson story. It's like there's going to be heavy metal references. There's going to be particularly recently some almost Tarantino-esque tangents and side notes. It's going to be quite dialogue heavy. It's not a guarantee, but there there may be some voyeurism. There may be someone dancing. I've had some reviewers say that's (laughs) problematic. That's fine. There'll probably be a riff. It's not fine to be problematic. I just mean I don't agree with I, I don't agree with that. They're entitled to their opinion. I have a different <laughs> opinion on that matter. There's probably going to be references to Japan and there's probably going to be on some level some some not ideal relationships, let's say. And 
there's a good chance that the protagonist is going to be a socially awkward person, borderline fucking idiot at times. That's yeah. okay. That like I'm, I'm writing things for, you know, a certain audience, and I, and rather than trying to be like, oh, I don't want to fall into this box. I mean, it's not a box that a lot of other authors are doing. So it's not all that <laughs> that timeless genre of, of dick jokes and voyeurism and <laughs> what the fuck moments. But r- rather than like straying away from it, I'm just embracing it. And it's like whatever story comes up is the story that I'm going to write. And and there is a little parallel actually to to the lesson that I was talking about before where... You know, I always kept coming back to English literature and writing, even when I was taken away from it. And so, I mean, one of the reasons that I started planning Together Forever was I was looking at getting a literary agent, but I knew that Daddy's Boy was not the novel (laughs) to get an agent with. So then I started planning this more commercial thing, but it, it just wasn't fun to be by the numbers commercial. So I had to add my twist to it. And, you know, I'm probably never going to write something that you think, oh, that that's an easy sell to an agent. But hopefully if I do things with enough competence, it, there'll be something unique enough where somebody will, will then decide to represent me. And if they don't, you know, that's also fine because there are other avenues like the having a literary agent can be useful, but it is not to be put on a pedestal and it's not the only viable route to a writing career. Yeah, that's true. Going back to something that you said um, about there's always going to be references to this and this and this. I immediately thought of Stephen Graham Jones because we just talked on the podcast recently about demon theory, which he wrote in 1999 and some of the stuff mm. he said he was making references to and people have been like, why, why are these characters talking about, you know, um, music that's from the, like the late eighties and whatever. And I'm thinking, mm. I was thinking to myself, that's like in every book you write. Um, yeah. but imagine if someone discouraged him from doing that, it wouldn't be a Stephen Graham Jones story. So that was yeah. the first thing that I thought of was like, even though some people might do things a certain way, that doesn't necessarily mean it's detracting from the story. So. No, no. And and also, I mean, there's another kind of flaw that you're assuming that what everyone who discovers one of your books has read all of them. Right. (laughs) That is a majorly false assumption. Yeah. Seriously. For the majority of people, Um, for sure. Yeah. And I, I, I think there's many, possibly even the majority of writers where you probably could parody. I mean, if you look at Haruki Murakami, let's throw a cat in, let's throw some jazz music references. <laughs> let's have some Italian cooking. That's probably pasta. He's got mm-hmm. all of these like bizarre elements. <laughs> let's have a weird sheep man or something like that. It's <laughs> classic, classic Murakami, but it seems to have worked out okay for him. You you look at music and Motorhead and Slayer, you could say, arguably made a career out of writing 
not the same song. Some would say that, but, you know, very similar songs again and again. And I think if people enjoy what you're doing, I mean, I, I think a lot of people actually like that comfort and familiarity. Mm -hmm. So there are some people who they want something completely different from every single story, but there are others who, who they do want that comfort. So, I mean, if I think of Josh Malaman, his range is so diverse, but it's almost like there are different types of Josh Malaman stories that you're going to get and you don't know which one it is until you jump into it. Now, as is probably obvious from my writing, I'm a big fan of those dialogue-heavy books. So I love stuff like A House at the Bottom of a Lake, which I guess I would because I put that one out. But, you know, <laughs> things like Doug and Judy by the house washer in the latest one, and also the opening story, I mean... Half the House is Haunted. I was blanking on yeah. the name of it there. That's my favorite Josh Malaman mode. But yeah, he he kind of fits. He'll give you everything because he's got that mode, which is comfort food for me. But then he'll fucking throw Igorov in, which is like a mad... <laughs> is it a pastiche? What even is it to Russian novel writing it is like a tribute it's a pastiche it's a cover yeah it and it's so meticulously well done i mean he the bits that the editor initially thought mm, is that writing a bit off it's like he's parodying some of the flaws of russian novel writing from a period this guy is annoyingly intelligent at times right but yeah and especially like yeah. factoring in translation and stuff yeah 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 it's like no no i'm parodying if it was translated josh just, just stop being just calm down man <laughs> leave yeah, totally. some talent for the rest of us what are you playing at <laughs> um uh yeah so i'm gonna jump into uh, some themes uh, of, of the book and um, and I'm going to tie it into the fact that you said that this was probably one of the more personal stories that you've written. Um, understanding that like in the past, there's been stories that take place in situations similar to yours, like someone who's living in Japan, who's from the UK, who, you know, like that kind of stuff has happened before. Um, and you said this is very personal Themes that I pulled out of this um, that were important in the story to me, obviously, are parenthood, um, mm. family, and then obviously like abuse and trauma and survival, kind of as a as a cluster. Um, and I'll, I'll I have another one written down that I'll talk about separately. But of those things, like, okay. so where does the personalness come from? Um, uh, of those themes, or outside of those themes, like from. Yeah, where does that part come from? Yeah. I mean, Any of those the, themes are something is, entirely different? Yeah, every, everything you've mentioned. And yeah, this is the first interview that I'm doing about House of Bad Memories. And like, I'm, I'm 
I'm not sure and I won't be sure until I give you this answer, like how deep <laughs> am I going to go on these things? But I I wrote I wrote House of Bad Memories in two very separate times. So originally it was conceived as a novella. Not only was it conceived as a novella, it had a publishing deal and I pulled out of that for various reasons, but there is literally a point where the, it, yeah, it ended, that, that was complete, that was how it was going to be published. And then when I got the rights back to it, I was just thinking about like, what, what do I want to do with this? And I think to people who have read it, it will probably be now that I've said that quite obvious as to where <laughs> the original novella ends and then the, the new content that expands it into a novel begins. But, you know, my film agent, who I mentioned before, Ryan Lewis, he had... He, he he had read the initial novella and, and so the way that things work with him is that I, I'll typically send him everything I've written and I'll ask him, do you, know, do, do you think this is something where you could shop the film rights for it? And, you know, with some stories he'll say, yeah, absolutely. And with others, it's like this is going to be a harder sell. With House of Bad Memories, he was like, you know, it was going, it was going to be a harder sell. Um, <laughs> you know, it is, it is very British and specific to living not only in the UK but almost a certain part of the UK. Very dialogue heavy, and he's just like the. He wasn't quite seeing what, what's the hook here? What is the thing that is going to get the studios to be like, yes, I absolutely have to make this. Because also we're in an age where it's like, if you're selling the, the film rights, it's not enough for it to be like, this is a good story. It needs to be great. It needs to have a hook. It needs to have like, this is the reason we want to give you money. Um, and, and so because as a novella, he, he wasn't sure, you know, how, how could he sell that? I, I thought, I'm going to have an attempt at expanding this. I'm going to see, is, is there something else? And, you know, the, the idea I came up with is, you know, the book that you have read. And I knew... That it, well, in expanding it, I thought, okay, I have either made it more commercial or I have made it even harder to sell. And it's probably the latter category. But at that point, I decided, no, I'm, this, I'm committed to this <laughs> now. This is the direction that I want to go in. Um. I certainly know that in the second half there are some scenes or a very specific theme scene that I do not think will be filmed 
I'll know if it is holy hell. All right. Thanks for listening to part one of my discussion uh, with Michael David Wilson about himself and his book, House of Bad Memories. I want to do a reminder, House of Bad Memories is out October 13th, which is a Friday, Friday the 13th. It's available for pre-order now through Cemetery Gates Media, so make sure you jump on that and get that pre-order done. It is available in paperback and ebook. And um, if there ends up being some special code through Michael, I'll make sure that it's part of this post. Come back soon for many, many new episodes, including a conversation with Nat Cassidy, conversation with Richard Chismar, and also I have Cassandra Caw and Richard Cadry joining me together to talk about their book, The Dead Take the A-Train. So there's a lot of good stuff coming up, including part two with Michael David Wilson.